This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. We have two great guests, Thomas Phillips, an adjunct professor in the Department of Finance and Risk Engineering at NYU's Tandon School of Engineering, Adam Kabor, who is a director of investments at the NYU's investment office. They are both co-authors of a paper that caught our eyes earlier this year called the Ultra Simple Schiller's Cape, How One Year's Data Can Predict Equity Market Returns Better Than 10. Um, Adam, perhaps with the, the practitioner's worldview on before we get into sort of the details of the paper, how are you looking at the challenges of today's markets, how you're looking at estimating returns, and what got you collaborating with Thomas on this, this line of work? Absolutely. Uh, good afternoon, everyone, and happy Thanksgiving. Thank you very much for the opportunity speaking with you. And yes, very good question. So the motivation for me is enhancing our long-term return forecasting toolkit. So every investor, every institutional investor starts the investment decisions with setting the strategic asset allocation. This pretty much defines how we envision the portfolio over the long term, what percentage should go into U.S. equities, international equities, fixed income, and other asset classes. And to do this exercise, we need so-called capital market assumptions which is a critical input to this whole exercise. And one of the most difficult, most challenging component of these capital market assumptions is setting the long-term expected return. And right here with Tom, I had the chance, the opportunity to explore this question further. How can we, based on today's information, based on long-term observations about dynamics in the market, valuations, all those components, all those building blocks. How can we prepare, how can we define a long-term expected return for U.S. equity markets? So this is actually the practical relevance. How can we come up with a good asset allocation, which is based on a meaningful return expectation for equities? And, and Tom, when you say, when you started looking at the toolkit and how you were thinking about getting expected returns from the markets, uh, the, I guess the, the CAPE index was one that you thought was uh, needed some, some new work on. Absolutely. This is a problem that I've worked on for many years, starting in the late 90s. I think I first published a paper on the expected return of the market in 1999. I've worked on it multiple times uh, since then. Um, and we felt that, Adam and I felt that the CAPE framework, while theoretically sound, could be improved on in a number of ways. Professor yeah, Segal, I know yeah. you have similar thoughts here, too. Yeah. Um, well, thank you. This is uh, you know, Jeremy Siegel, and we really appreciate you, uh, both uh, Thomas and Adam, 
that we're, I'm going to give just the, the uh, maybe our listeners a little background here, uh, sure. so they they can help uh, understand uh, some some of the factors we're talking about. Um, uh, back in the uh, uh, 1990s, Bob Schuller published a piece um, uh, with a co-author. Uh, John Campbell. And, yeah, John Campbell. Um, and uh, that became one of the most well-known pieces uh, actually on long-term forecasting. Um, he named his model uh, the CAPE model, uh, CAPE, which stood for uh, cyclically adjusted price earnings ratios. He used a 10-year average. So instead of using one-year PE ratios to predict the market, he used uh, an average of earnings over the last 10 years. He did it in real terms, um, and uh, he used it to uh, project returns afterwards uh, in the next 10 years. And if I, my memory serves me right, I think he got our squares of 10-year projections about one-third, which is pretty remarkable, you know, in the stock market to predict returns given the volatility. Um, and, uh, and certainly it worked at the peak in, um, in, in 2000, predicting uh, certainly uh, poor, turns, uh, poor returns uh, from from that peak going forward, and and of course he went all the way back to 1871, where the where the earnings data started, uh, the 10-year average then starts in 1881. So we have a, we have 140 years, a long time to to use that. Now, the CAPE ratio has not been very good uh, in recent years, um, and uh, about five or six years ago, I published a piece um, uh, in the um, a financial analyst journal uh, about some of the problems with using the CAPE ratio. Um, I particularly pointed out that uh, Schiller's use of reported or gap earnings um, instead of operating earnings uh, biased uh, his data. And in particular, I pointed out that gap earnings has uh, changed in concept because of rulings of the Financial Accounting Standards Board over the last several decades um, in, in such a way that uh, adds a lot more cyclicality to the earnings um, and, and therefore uh, distorts uh, uh, some of the data. So I, I came out quite a few years ago saying it's not when, – when Bob, when Bob was saying four, four or five years ago that the stock market was way overvalued – I said, not really. If you look at operating earnings, it's not nearly as overvalued as if you look at at reported earnings. And that that has gotten a lot of press going forward. Now we have continued all-time highs, as we know, just uh, this week on the S&P. We are not at the highs of the CAPE ratio, but almost at the high in 1999. on the CAPE ratio, um, what's, what, what, tell us about your forecast going forward and uh, what, what, uh, what do you take about the current uh, use of the CAPE ratio to forecast future returns? Sure. Uh, let me start with the forecast, and I'll, let me go back to how we get there. 
It's about one and a third percent per year for the next decade. We think the market's rich. Now, that's not lower than the expected percent of bonds, so it's unreasonable to say that the, the market's hugely overvalued, but it is fair to say that we are in a, in a low expected return environment. Let's turn to clock back. John, uh, John Campbell and, and Bob Schiller uh, testified at Congress in either 96 or 97 and used those now famous words, uh, irrational exuberance. They argued that the stock market's overvalued uh, and that the next, over the next 10 years, you'll have a real return of about zero. Well, it turns out that from 1997 onwards, the return was about, I think, about 10% per annum or so over the next decade. So that was a bad call starting at that point. Uh, starting in 2000, however, it, the, the return of the market was much lower and their prediction was more accurate. <clears throat> and at the end of 1999, we predicted a 10-year return of approximately zero. That's in nominal terms, not in real terms. And uh, the actual return was about minus 0.95% per annum, call it minus 1% per annum. So here's how we do things a little differently. Let's start by asking what what keeps really doing when it averages 10 years of earnings? Well, it's doing two things. One is it says earnings are noisy, so let's filter out some of that noise by averaging. Uh, the, average, uh, the, the volatility of an average is much lower than the volatility of each of the individual components, and therefore you get the noise reduction. The second thing it's doing is to say, look, there's a... Uh, the earnings could be high in one year, low in another year. There's an economic cycle, that a uh, business cycle that, uh, that the economy is riding on. And we'd like to average out over the course of a business cycle to get a feel for what the earnings of the S&P could be uh, going forward. And we take this, these problems, these two, and they do a kill two birds with one stone. They take a 10-year average of earnings, they adjust for inflation uh, to make earnings from 10 years ago more comparable to earnings today. Uh, to earnings today. We argue that adjust by, adjusting by revenues is actually a better way to do it. But you don't have to kill two birds with one stone. You can actually kill two birds with two stones and take those two solutions that you get and combine them in a really useful way. Let's take the first problem, noise and earnings. Well, you could average out 10 years of earnings to get some noise reduction. The other thing you could do is observe that a lot of the bad stuff happens in the worst quarter in each year. For example, if we look at 2020, in the first quarter, the S&P earned $11.88. Second quarter was $17.83. Third quarter, $33.56. And the consensus estimate for the fourth quarter is thirty dollars and thirty cents. Well, you could throw away the eleven eighty-eight, and that's got all the bad stuff uh, concentrated there. And say, so let me take the remaining three quarters, add them up, uh, and multiply by four thirds to bring it back to an annual number. You get a projected earnings of about a hundred nine dollars a share. The CAPE methodology gives you about 111. 
Here's the fascinating thing. The simple trick, taking the worst quarter out in each year, is better than CAPE in predicting next year's earnings. It has a, it has a bias of about 3 or 4% on average. CAPE has a bias of about 20% uh, on average. It also is less noisy. The standard deviation of the error is about 16%. For CAPE, it's about 25%. So that's problem one. Uh, you can filter the noise using this drop the, drop the bad stuff uh, trick instead of average them all out trick. The second thing we do is to say, look, you, the relationship between earnings and returns doesn't have to be a straight line. It could be kinked. It could be nonlinear. And we take that into account. Third, J, uh, Bob, uh, Bob Scheller and John Campbell focused on real returns, and we show that nominal returns are actually much easier to forecast than real returns. Finally, we say the, the, uh, the problem of valuation can be explored in many ways, of cyclicality can be explored in many ways, doesn't have to be through PE alone, through earnings alone. You could also look at the price-to-sales ratio, or as Warren Buffett sometimes says, the ratio of stock market capitalization to GDP, and that gives you an independent read on the, on, on the uh, expected return of the market. And then you can take these two forecasts and just average them and come up with a, with a better forecast. And it turns out to be a much better forecast than Cape. Yeah, so let me um, uh, just interject here a couple of things. Sure. When you, the earnings you are using are gap earnings? Yes. Okay. Yes, we are. So, uh, and yeah, we so have, it's and there's a reason for not using operating earnings. Yeah, you are not using operating earnings. So not what is interesting earnings. about uh, your uh, technique versus mine, um, sure. it is well known that they throw a lot of stuff in the gap earnings in that last quarter, bad stuff. Yep. And that's one of the reasons that depresses gap earnings. So really, in a way, one reason why I found operating earnings to be very good is there are some things that are thrown into it, but nowhere near as much as with gap earnings. So by moving to operating earnings, you, you, it's another way. I mean, I'm not saying it's an exactly equivalent yeah. way, but another way of, of, of getting out that, uh, that, this, the, that uh, throwing the kitchen sink of bad stuff into that uh, fourth quarter. Um, uh, the second thing, uh, you, you, you did mention GDP to um, uh, market, to market value. Market cap. Yep. Yeah, I, I have always been disturbed by that as an indicator. Um, especially in long historical series, yep. uh, when, when you have 40%, let's take in the United States, when you, you have 40% of the sales of the, 45% of the sales of the S&P companies go, going outside the United States, yep. where maybe 30 or 40 years ago it was 10%, Yes. Then uh, you're obviously going to get a up a dramatic upward drift 
in uh, market capitalization fully justified the GDP. Yep. Um, so I never liked that. I know that okay. Warren, you know, I'm, I'm saying I, I know that Warren Buffett has talked about it, but I, uh, you know, I, I think it is it is totally uh, misleading um, um, because of the internationalization, globalization of so many of yeah. of, of those firms. I mean, do you how, how do you uh, do you do you uh, correct for that in any way? So you're saying sales no matter where in in the world. So you're not really taking U.S. GDP? Uh, Are you taking a GDP measure or just looking at their sales uh, numbers? No. In fact, here's a very important – I'm going to – both your points are valid, but they're both addressed in our work. First, we don't use GDP. We use the revenues of the S&P 500. So it's a direct comparison to sales, not to U.S. GDP. Okay. Um, and essentially, when you take a price-to-sales ratio, you're saying something about margins, about profit margins. When price-to-sales ratios are high, profit margins are high, and you expect them to revert over, the, over, over time. In fact, they hit a low of about 3, three and change percent after the 1991 recession and have recovered very strongly since then. It's not clear to me that they will maintain their elevated level over the next decade or two. So, even, so while your point about market cap to GDP is valid, that's very cleanly addressed by using sales in place of uh, and not right. GDP. The second Let me just our guests really about- quick. We're, we're talking with Thomas Phillips and Adam Gabor, who wrote a paper about the Schiller Cape and using one year's of earnings. Um, I, I want to com- maybe come back. I know, Professor, I'm sure you're going to want to talk about the, uh, the the actual forecast. When it, where you came to 1.5%, um, we had seen a paper from that had the 2018 forecast that was about 4.8%, I think. Yes. Uh, and, and sort of the sales forecast was like 2%. Some of the earnings models were more like 8%. What, when you think about how you combine those, there's a number of things going into your 1.5%, but do you want to talk a little bit about more where that 1.5% comes from there? Sure. Um, I'm going to just go back for one second to wrap up a thought on uh, uh, on operating earnings, and then I'll address your question, Jeremy. Okay. Um, operating earnings are one way to do it, to sense uh, noise, but they ignore changes in the capital structure of U.S. companies because uh, – Interest expense is not, uh, not included in operating earnings. We believe that it's better to use gap earnings and filter out the noise using this uh, worst quarter method instead of throwing out both, uh, throwing out the noise in accounting rules plus the capital structure impact of, uh, of interest payments. Now coming to your, uh, Jeremy Schwartz, your question about how do these two, uh, two models line up? A few years ago, expected returns were indeed higher. Now, the, the sales model suggests a return that's slightly negative. The, the equity uh, return model, the equity model, uh, I said that wrong, the earnings model suggests a return of about 3 and, 3.5%. When you average the two, you get about 1.5%. And you can try more sophisticated averages. It just doesn't have to be a simple average. But it turns out you don't get very much for the extra work that you put in. In fact, there's a fancy name for this in the forecasting literature. It's called the forecast combination puzzle. 
fancy combination techniques don't really work very much better than a simple uh, than a simple average. Uh, I, I, I want to comment again on, on gap earnings. As you know, uh, yeah. I think two years ago, Warren Buffett uh, uh, called gap earnings the way it's been changed in recent years now, uh, worse than worthless as a way of evaluating every business. As you know, the recent law change forces firms to put estimated changes in capital values uh, sure. which goes way away from the uh, what's called the ongoing uh, uh, profitability of the firm in there has attacked it. I'm not sure about your statement that all interest income is eliminated. I do think that a lot of interest costs are, in fact, subtracted from uh, operating earnings. Um, and this is just going back on a on a check there, but there's been a, a more and increasing criticism of gap earnings um, by people who, in fact, are, are value investors uh, yeah. in, in terms of doing. We, we also talked about the capitalization of R&D uh, versus expensing, et cetera, and so on. Um, but but let but 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 I also want to talk about um, let, let's. The, you, your claim is that the the sales to um, capitalization price. ratio is, is of course sales to price to, totally free of earnings, right? Um, yes, except yeah. that and if so you let's multiply let's, sales so by profit margins, you get earnings. So you're saying something about profit margins? Well, are you saying anything about earnings when you're you're you're, you're I mean, I guess it. Uh, that that still relates to costs and how you cost things. I'm just saying, are you doing? Is it just the, the sales versus the market cap, or does it is it the sales over cost versus? I mean, I'm a little bit. No, 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 no. Sales versus market cap. Sales to price. Sales to price. So it has nothing to do with the earnings. Nope. Okay. Not directly. Uh, Indirectly. What, yes. Directly. So the no. question is. And this is an interesting economic question. You you talked about re reversion. Um, yep. To However, the question I think has to do is, I guess, with uh, are profit margins permanently higher? Um, Perhaps because interest Good rates question. are so low, are they permanently higher? Perhaps because trademark copyrights, intellectual property is now such a high part of 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 that that cannot be uh, directly competed away. The digital revolution, uh, where size itself makes you uh, uh, so, is it is is or are any of those factors secular? that could really bring about a permanent rise in that profit margin. I'm not saying that it might not be too high right now. I'm just saying uh, you think it's going to revert back to the average over the last 50 or 100 years. I'm not saying that it's going to revert back to the average. Uh, that's a strong statement. What I am saying is that in a market economy with no real limits to entry, Profit margins are far less robust uh, than one might believe. But is that the it, truth? That's my question. You think there's no limit to entry today? Um, I think it's 
uh, there's a lot of capital chasing new ideas, and I don't think the limits to entry are as high as once believed. Certainly um, not so that the all these are not invincible. The votes are not will, will be eroded today, that there's no, no, no patents or copyrights and moats that in, let's say, the past, of course, we don't know what antitrust action might be on the part of the government, right. but in the past might have been, you know, forced you to accept that competition. Right now, you know, in other words, you know, Facebook and Google and all those will, uh, you know, face effective competition uh, in the future that will bring their margins back down. I'm going to argue that the margins of companies like Facebook are actually more fragile than they might appear. It just takes one change to the law. Your data is yours, and you must consent to its use or be paid for its use, and Facebook's, uh, Facebook's uh, business model is in trouble. What about Amazon? Amazon, could uh, a lot of its money is made through AWS. Uh, there are low-margin business elsewhere, but you could find a very fierce competitor. Walmart's coming along very strongly. Uh, never underestimate competition in a market economy. No, I, 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 I agree. So that margin compression could put pressure on all these big cap stocks into the future. Is that yeah. correct? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Okay. Did you did you break up between the tech stocks, which of course have seen the biggest increase in margin, or what we call the growth stocks, and the non-growth stocks, which of course have not seen these increases in margin and arguably even decrease in margin? Would would your hypothesis could be interpreted as maybe favoring the quote value stocks over the growth stocks in the future? We didn't explore that, uh, but the margin reversion comes about in two ways. In really bad businesses, you either get a restructuring, again, in a competitive economy, you either get them restructured or they exit. And, the world, uh, and the, what re the economy that remains is more prof profitable than the, economy, the part of the economy that's gone away. Uh, it's hard to imagine this now, but Apple was within four months of shutting down and bankruptcy when Steve Jobs returned. But it had a very low market cap, I mean, at that point. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, so. Absolutely. Uh, it had even, it had awful margins, it had awful everything. Yeah, but uh, would, 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 would you, you, you I'd, I'd skirted around the question, if, if you had a choice, let's say, of the Russell value versus the Russell growth, yes. given your statements to me, it sounds you would yep. tilt towards the, the value. Am I, am I correct on that? Yes, you are. Yes, you are. Okay. That's the long-term forecast, and it's fair to say that over the last decade, value stocks have been absolutely destroyed by growth stocks. Correct. And That's you think... It. Nothing's that, forever. That, that Nothing's forever. You think the potential of competition, as you say, and I, I think there's a good case, but n I'm not yeah. sure about it, but uh, with the digital world and, and, and the, the ability yeah. of scalability being so hugely high. But nonetheless, 
um, uh, that those would be the, obviously the candidates for the uh, margin compression. Yes, indeed. Now, with value indices and growth indices, there's something else that's subtle growing, uh, going on. That is, they're rebalanced uh, typically once a year or so to, the, to a 50-50 market cap weight. So equal, they have an equal amount of capital in the, two, in the two halves, the growth half and the value half. So let's say the growth half keeps growing very fast. Uh, well, at the, end of a, at the end of a year, just before the rebalance, it'll have a much bigger market cap, and therefore some of the growth companies will be pushed into the value bucket. If this happens again, the, at the rebalance, it'll happen yet again. So slowly over time, the growthier companies that are in the growth index will leak into the value bucket, and the value uh, bucket's growth rate will come up. And I proved this back in 2003 or so. Over the long term, the growth rates of a value index and a growth index will be about the same. I want to bring Adam back in the conversation because uh, it's been a little while since we started with him. Uh, but Adam, when you think about the the implications for investors like yourself who are trying to allocate capital, how have you taken this research? Have you been trying to adjust what you're doing? Are you thinking about other opportunities? I mean, maybe sort of distill some of this the, the academic research here into into what you're you're trying to do in your portfolios. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I really enjoyed the the conversation and. Uh, you both made very good points. Uh, let me emphasize, though, that uh, the scope of this research is a really quantitative and empirical research. So we go back to about 1925, which by now covers a century-long history. And obviously, the industry structure, the market structure has changed several times. So clearly, uh, railroads, industrials, uh, energy companies made uh, played a much more significant role in the economy decades, multiple decades ago than right now. Currently, we speak about uh, obviously about uh, tech companies and, and growth stocks. So I'm just making this caveat because it's important to say that what we really try to uncover in this research is how long-term, say decade-long uh, equity returns gravitate to some kind of valuation-based forecast. And right here in this paper, we pretty much anchored uh, return expectation to some kind of a modified version of P-E ratio and then price to sales. So what it uh, puts, what, what, what it gives us in, in practical terms is setting a return expectation for either U.S. equities or equities in general or even the overall uh, endowment or whatever kind of portfolio we are speaking about. And what it tells us is that return expectations given high price to sales, high price to earnings. Return expectation or what we could expect right now is, is going to be lower than what we would enjoy over the past decade. So clearly, it, it, uh, it helps investors setting a realistic uh, return target, which is low compared to the past 10 years. It uh, also advocates uh, preparing uh, spending, saving accordingly. And, and 
this is not about our paper, but uh, capital market uh, assumptions in general. Uh, obviously, we look at this research, we look at uh, other sources of return expectation from various asset managers and banks, and, and we look uh, back in history how this kind of forecast, forecasts played out. On one hand, they gave a reasonably good order of magnitude for return expectation. But, for example, 10 years ago, many, this is not our paper, but say other firms, uh, other sources, expected, say, emerging market equities to vastly outperform U.S. equities. And clearly, this did not happen. So we also have to be aware of limitations of purely uh, valuation-based uh, return forecast. So diversification, allocating portfolio to multiple asset classes and uh, geographic uh, regions still is an important uh, consideration. So, yeah, <laughs> very briefly, yeah. Uh, this tells us that, uh, hey, uh, future outlook is not as rosy as what we could enjoy over the past decade, but we would also not say that this is going to be a perfect forecast. Professor Sigurd, down to our final two or three minutes. Um, any commentary from you on just where you look at the, the markets as, as how they're priced today for, I know you say below average future returns, but not quite to, down to 1.5%. Um, look, uh, this particular paper, this research, uh, is connecting future returns or return expectations to price earning and price to sales using a quadratic regression and, and using actually multiple sets of regressions. Other sources, other capital market assumptions use more like a building block uh, assumption, uh, real earnings growth, dividend yields, inflation, possible changes to P ratio and whatnot. Uh, what I am seeing right now from other sources uh, for U.S. equities is pretty much ranging between 4% to five and a half percent so maybe our regression based outlook is more pessimistic than uh, other sources in any case uh, all of them all of them point to lower returns than what we saw in the future uh, sorry what we saw in the past and speaking of the future clearly bond returns outlook is uh, not great either given low levels of interest rate well, no, this has been a great conversation for a very important line of work. Uh, I just want to thank Adam and Thomas for joining us on our program today. Thank you so much for sharing your, your insights. Yes, thank you very much. Thank for you for having us. It was a great conversation. Professor Siegel, thanks for staying with us. Uh, I'd like to thank, thank our producer, Patty Hall, sound engineer, Chris Tooks. You can listen to us every week on our Behind the Markets podcast. You can email us at businessradio at SiriusXM. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit WisdomTree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.